All right. <clears throat> you can turn in your Bible to Esther. Turn in your Bible to the book of Esther. We'll get to Esther in just a little while. Listen to this. Paul says this to Timothy. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So think about that for a minute. He says the aim of our charge, there's an, there's an aim. Something we're aiming at. As I give a charge this morning, as I preach the word this morning, there's an aim. There's a bullseye. And the bullseye here, it says, is love. It issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So how do you know, as you hear the word of God this morning, how do you know if it's hit its mark? How do you know if the bullseye has been struck? You know that when the love towards God is produced in you and sincere faith and good conscience and all these things that are mentioned, I want to stir up your affections for God, for Christ this morning. That's the aim. So let's pray that the Lord would help us to do that. Father, thank you so much for this time where we can gather together around your powerful word, your perfect word. And God, I pray that you would give us help, divine help, God, that you would grant it to us, grant it to me, Lord, to preach your word and the ability that you supply. God, grant it to all the hearers here this morning to hear your word and the ability that you supply. And God, I pray that you would come and be with us, Lord, and allow us to continue our worship, God, as we meditate on who you are through the Scriptures. We love you, Lord, and we know that our affections for you is not, are not as high as they ought to be. So God, raise them this morning. Let us catch a glimpse of you and raise them, God. Worthy, worthy are you to be praised. And Lord, we hate our coldness. We hate our coldness towards you. So God, come against it through your word this morning. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to mention to you three uh, real-life situations. Three real-life situations. And you tell me, what's the common thread that runs through these three real-life situations? Number one, We'll call this situation the random arrow. We'll call it the random arrow. You don't have to flip there, but listen to this Bible verse. It's my favorite verse in the book of 1 Kings. It's 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 34. It says this, But a certain man drew his bow at random. And he struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I'm wounded. That's an interesting verse to be my favorite verse in 1 Kings, right? This is the random error. I want you to think about this for a moment. 
that God is in, in control of this random arrow. It says a man drew his bow at random. And we just get this picture of this man. He doesn't know it's the king of Israel. He doesn't know that God wants this man to die. He doesn't know that God has cast judgment and prophecy against this man. He knows nothing of the sort because the king of Israel is just in normal armor. He did that on purpose. And here's this man, and he just draws his bow, it says, at random. He just shoots a bow, shoots an arrow into the crowd that he sees, and God is in control of the trajectory of that arrow. He's in control of the wind speed and the wind direction. He's in control of the position that Ahab, the king of Israel, is standing in. And he's in control as that arrow slices right in between the joints of his armor and wounds this man. It's the random arrow. Now the man who shot it, he had no idea that that random shot was actually fulfilling prophecy. That God had said to Ahab, Ahab had unjustly killed a man named Naboth. And God said this to that king, Ahab said, Ahab, I'm going to tell you this, the very place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, that's the exact place where the dogs are going to lick your blood. And it's a prophecy about this man and how he'll die. And here's this random bow shot and this random arrow that God is directing the trajectory of, and it lands in just a way to fulfill the prophecy. And, and this man is struck by this arrow. And he slumps down in his chariot. And he begins to bleed out. And the driver of his chariot takes him back to his home and he dies there. Then they take the chariot back to that, listen to it, just so happened to that very spot where Naboth was killed. And they begin to wash the chariot out. And guess what the dogs do? They come and they lick the blood. Just like God said. So here's this random arrow that God is in control of. Situation number two. Fast forward a little bit. We'll call this the 300 orphans. We'll call it the 300 orphans. So you fast forward a little bit, and, and there's a man named George Mueller. In the 1800s AD, George Mueller is a man that's a pastor in Bristol, England, a, a well-known uh, contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He preached in his pulpit every now and then. And this man is a builder of orphanages. And he did it to the glory of God. He would build these orphanages to take care of orphans just so he could show that he doesn't need to present his needs to men. He didn't present his needs to men, but rather he went to God in prayer and God heard his prayers and supported these orphans. And so he builds orphanages to the glory of God. But well, one morning he's got 300 orphans under his care. 300 orphans. And the house mom of that orphanage comes to George Mueller and says, says, uh, Look, all the orphans, all 300 of them, they're ready, they're dressed, they're ready for school. We've got no food to give them. We've got no breakfast to give them. To which George Mueller says, okay, just get them all sat down. God will provide. He'll take care of us. Get them all sat down around the table. He sits the orphans down around the table, and he begins to cry out to God. And he prays, God, thank you for what you will supply. Thank you for being our help in time of need. And he begins to pray for them. He stops praying. And just a moment later, there's a knock at the door. And the baker of the town shows up. And he says, I couldn't sleep last night. For some reason, I feel like I need to come here and give you this bread. Do you have need of this bread? And so, of course, they have need of the bread. A few moments later, another knock at the door. And the milkman comes to the door. And he says, look, my cart just broke down right outside the orphanage here. And this milk is going to spoil. Do you have any need for it? 
And God provides for his orphans and he answers George Mueller's prayer. Third situation. We'll call it Rafiki sent by God. Rafiki sent by God. Fast forward again to uh, Pearl, Mississippi, about eight, nine years ago, something like that. And my heart begins, me and Lydia and, and a few others, our hearts begin to be burdened for, this, for, for the poor and the, the poverty that's in this world, and we want to do something about it. So I begin to research about what are, the, what are the poorest places on this planet, what are the most impoverished places in the world. And my research brings back that there's this place, it's always in the top three of the poorest places in the world, called the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Never heard of this place. In fact, I've never, I've never, I don't know anything about it. I never met one single soul from this place. And I say, God, let me have an impact on this place. God, would you allow me to have some sort of impact on the Congo and these poor people? Will you let me do that, God? I don't know how God's going to answer that prayer. There was a time where us and the Grishams thought we'd be farmers there. That didn't go as planned. Just a few days later, I'm at a college campus, uh, Heinz Community College, Rankin Campus, and I'm passing out tracts like I've done many times. And suddenly, as I'm passing out tracts, I give a tract to a guy, and he turns around to me in broken English with an African accent, and it's Alan Daniel Rafiki Wabaguma from the Congo, who is now my, one of my best friends in this world that allows me to have some sort of impact in the Congo as he himself reaches back in through different ways to take care of the poor there, okay? Here's three situations. What are the, what's, the, what's the common thread that runs through these situations? Does anybody know maybe a one-word summary of what the common thread would be? Anybody got a word? Sovereignty? Anybody got another word? Amen to Sovereignty? Say it again. Prayer, amen. Providence. All these are good, and I want to highlight the providence of God. I want you to think with me about God's amazing providence. Do you know that word? Do you know that word? Let's define the word providence. Let's define this word. Thomas Watson, he wrote a book called A Body of Divinity. This is how he defines providence. Providence is God's ordering of all issues and events of things after the counsel of His will to His own glory. Listen to it again. What is providence? It's God's ordering of all issues and events of things after the counsel of His will to His own glory. Do you see God's providence in all three of those real life situations? That He orders all things in the random arrow that He ordered. In the milk truck breaking down that He ordered to take care of 300 orphans. That He ordered a, a man from the Congo landing in Pearl, Mississippi. Do you see the providence of God in all of these three situations? Now, somebody else mentioned the sovereignty of God and amen. Uh, uh, the sovereignty of God and the providence of God are very, very similar, similar things, okay? That God is reigning and ruling over all things, and He is in control. Now here's a little bit, if you think about providence, that maybe sets it apart from the word sovereignty. 
You see, providence has a fatherly feel to it. That God as Father is, is, is our Father's working all things together to get rid, to destroy His enemies, and to do good to His people. Now another piece of providence that sets it apart from sovereignty. Typically when people think about providence, they're thinking about the, the unmiraculous things. you got miraculous things. God parts the Red Sea. Amazing supernatural interventions of God. But when we, when we think about providence, we're thinking about the natural order of things. And when it's all said and done, you go, man, look how God ordered these events that seem so natural. And yet God's obviously got His hand in this. It's the providence of God. So I want you to think about that in those three situations. In those three real-life situations, did you notice that they were almost un, unmiraculous? They were almost just natural occurrences, okay? So... What we didn't see was God parting the Red Sea to destroy His enemies. What we did see is God controlling a random, the random trajectory of an arrow, an arrow to destroy His enemies. What, what we don't see is God bringing water out of a rock to provide for His people, but we see a baker that can't sleep and a milkman whose cart breaks down. When I'm praying, God, let me have an impact on the Congo. God didn't teleport me there. Now we see that in the book of Acts, right? In Acts chapter 8, we see Philip literally teleported somewhere else to another place. He didn't do that, but rather God, before I even prayed the prayer, He was moving a man from Congo to go to Heinz Community College. Ranking campus. In Pearl. Providence of God. Do you see it? Do you see the providence of God? Now, the providence of God is extremely important. I think it's extremely important for us. It's literally all over the Bible. So, so I think we typically remember the, the kind of supernatural things that happen. But listen to me. If you just, just read your Bible again and keep your eye out for those things that seem so natural... Uh, uh, many of you know Randy Phillips that, that uh, passed on a few years back. He used to call it the, the naturally supernatural things. It just seems so natural. They seem so normal in their events, and yet God's piecing the puzzle together. This is how God acts all the time in His Word. So it's very, very important that we have a lively sense of the power of God, a lively sense of the presence of God in our day-to-day -day lives. And I think one way we get that is when we understand His providence. We have an eye out for the providence of God. Now, there's a book in the Bible that really puts the providence of God on display, and I hope you know what that book is by now. It's the book of Esther. The book of Esther, listen, hear me out. It never mentions the name of God. It's the only book in the Bible that definitely never mentions God's name, and yet you see His hand all over it. There are no miracles in the book of Esther unless you count those naturally supernatural miracles that just seem like God is bending all of time, all events, all thoughts to accomplish His will. The book of Esther. A, a godless pagan could read the book and be entertained and miss the hand of God in it. In fact, I'm pretty sure Hollywood has tried a couple times. So the book I'm talking about is the book of Esther. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn to the book of Esther. We're going to talk about this book together. And I want to give us an overview of the story of this book. And the aim is, is that we would worship God for His providence. 
book of Esther. First thing we need to do, we need to understand the story. We need to really get the story. There's different people, some are more familiar with the story, some are less familiar with the story. But remind yourself right now of the story of the book of Esther. In chapter 1, we're introduced to a king named Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, look at chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and the governors and the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. So we're introduced to this king. He's a, Pers he's a Persian king. He is a dominant emperor. It said here from Ethiopia to India. Think about that. 127 provinces and he reigns as king over this whole dominion. Now he's the one that's commonly known in in, uh, in secular history is Xerxes. This is the same king. If you've heard of Xerxes, this is the same king here. Now he's reigning in, you need to think the time period is post-exile. So Judah was taken captive by Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar was taken captive into Babylon. Cyrus, 70 years later, sent him back. And right now we're in post-exile. This is the time period. And Jews, many Jews have gone back. We said that in Ezra, in Nehemiah, but many Jews now are spread all throughout the kingdom of this king. There's Jews spread out everywhere. This is a post-exile time. Now, he's a very powerful man. He's got his signet ring that anything that he signs into law becomes law and nothing can change it. He's a very, very powerful man. The book of Esther presents him as a, as a drunken fool, as a man that's driven by self-glory. This is... This is the king here. And in chapter 1, what we see is he throws a massive party for his own glory. He throws a massive party for his own glory. You keep reading in chapter 1, you notice that he has a queen named Vashti. Queen Vashti. And in the midst of that drunken party, he says, tell Queen Vashti to come to me. I want to show off her beauty. And Queen Vashti steps on his toes because she says, uh-uh, I ain't coming. And this ticks him off, and it angers all the people, all the other officials that are around him. It brings fear into their hearts that there's going to be some kind of feminist uprising that happens because of this. And so the king divorces Queen Vashti. He puts her away. At the council of the men around him, he puts away and divorces Queen Vashti. And that's Esther chapter 1. We get into chapter 2, and we see the king's plan to get another queen. What's his plan going to be to get another queen? And what we see is he's going to gather together all the beautiful young virgins within his reign. It's going to be a bunch of ladies, a lot of women here. He's going to gather them up and have like this massive beauty contest. They're going to go through beauty preparations for a ridiculous amount of time. They're going to be presented to the king after they go through some different hoops they got to jump through. And the one that pleases the king the one that pleases the king, out of all these ladies, the one that pleases the king will be the one that will become the queen. And in that context is where we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Look at chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Mordecai and Esther. 
Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So Mordecai is a Jew of the captivity. He's one of the Jews that was taken captive earlier. He was taken captive whenever uh, King uh, Nebuchadnezzar took them captive in that time. Uh, Esther is an orphan Jew. Her parents have died, and she's being cared for by her cousin, her older cousin, Mordecai. So these are two Jews that honestly probably should return to, uh, they should have returned in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. More than likely, they should have returned back to Jerusalem, but here they are still living in a pagan land. As you keep reading through chapter 2, we see that Esther eventually is chosen as the queen. How about that for a story? An orphan Jew that becomes royalty in this pagan land. And, and so we see Esther is chosen. Now, one important detail before we move on. This detail is mentioned twice in chapter 2 so that we would not miss it. Nobody knows Esther's ethnicity. Nobody knows at this point that she is a Jew. They don't know that because Mordecai has told her, do not tell them that you are Jewish. We don't know why he told them that. It's just sitting under the providence of God. We don't know why, but, but nobody knows, not even the king, that she is of Jewish origin. Now we get to chapter 3, and we're introduced to a man named Haman. A man named Haman. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now Haman is an evil man. And he's, he's promoted to the highest place of authority under the king. And Haman's a wicked, evil man. He's a hater of the Jews. In chapter 3, he's literally called the enemy of the Jews. He especially hates Mordecai. He cannot stand Mordecai. And here he is in the most prominent position in the kingdom, except for the king himself. Now, Haman concocts this plan that he's going to literally try to kill all Jews. This is Jewish genocide. He's going to try to kill them all. And, he, and the way he tries to concoct this plan is he brings to the king a certain law. He says, King, there's these people in your kingdom that do not submit to your rules. And what we need to do is kill them all. And the king agrees, and he passes over his signet ring to Haman, and Haman signs it into law that on a certain day, everyone is to attack the Jews in all the 127 provinces, and they all will be annihilated. That's Haman's plan. Now, which day, which day will it happen? And it says that Haman gets the people in the kingdom there to cast a lot, which is interesting, because God is sovereign over all things. He's even sovereign over this lot. In Proverbs 16.33 it says, The lot is cast into the lap, 
But it's every decision is from the Lord. So under the sovereignty of God, they cast a lot. Which day will this happen? So here they are in the first month of the year, and the lot cast says, let's do it in the 12th month on the 13th day of that month. So it's coming a day. And in God's sovereignty, it's coming several months down the road to where all the Jews are going to die. They're going to be annihilated. And he sends out letters. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. A brutal verse here. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to do this. Listen. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. So here's this, the letters have been sent out. The law has been put in place. All the Jews are going to die. You get into chapter 4. Chapter 4, we see an interaction now. We see the response of the Jews, and we see an interaction between Queen Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai is still just a lowly man, and Esther is now queen. And we see an intera interaction between the two. The Jews are in shock. They can't believe it. What's going on here? Mordecai is weeping. Mordecai is mourning over this decision. He's mourning at the king's gate over this decision. And look at chapter 4, verse 8. Mordecai sends to Queen Esther and he says this. Mordecai also gave him a copy. Now that's Esther's attendant. Gives, it to, gives him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Esther, go back to the king and plead that our people would be saved. As you keep reading, you realize that Esther initially responds with fearfulness. She's afraid. What is this man? She's not much to this man. This man just divorced Bosh. He didn't want anything to do with her. It's actually written in the law that if she goes to the king before her appointed time, that the judgment is that she should die. Unless for some reason the king offers his scepter and offers favor to her. And so she's afraid and so she's filled with fear. And so she, she sends back to Mordecai that she is afraid of what might happen. At this point, nobody knows that she's a Jew. Look at Mordecai's response in chapter 4, verse 12. This is beautiful. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've, you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you see amazing faith here? Do you see amazing trust in the providence of God? Queen Esther, listen. Esther, I know the promises of God. I know what God has said about a Messiah coming through the Jewish people. And if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. But who knows if you've come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. Is this not God's providence? And Esther responds 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be in, found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So here's, here's the problem laid out to us. We get into chapter 5, and we're going to speed up through the second half of this book. Let's take chapters 5 through 7 together. In chapters 5 through 7, we see an interaction. As Esther goes to the king, we see an interaction between Esther and the king, and get this, and Haman. Esther and the king and wicked Haman. And she courageously goes to the king. The king offers her favor. He, the king has favor with her. And the king says, what is your request up to half the kingdom, Queen Esther? What is your request up to half the kingdom? Now she asked that the following day there would be a banquet. And that the king would come to the banquet. And get this, that Haman would come to the banquet. And so she, she says, look, on the following day, you, king, and Haman, y'all come to this banquet that I prepare, and then I'll make known my request to you. And, and again, we'll dig more into this in just a moment. But as you know, Haman leaves that place, and man, he's happy as a lark that he gets a chance to dine. He's been chosen to dine with the king and the queen at the queen's request. And of course, the next day shows up, and, and you remember what happened. The queen begins to tell the king, she says, there's a man in your kingdom who wants to kill me, your queen, and wants to kill all of my people. They don't know that she's a Jew. They want to kill me, and he wants to kill all of my people. And the king says, who is this man? And she says, it's the wicked Haman. And so Haman is executed. He's killed. Done. Last three chapters of the book, chapters 8, 9, and 10, we see then an interaction between Esther and the king, and now not Haman, but Mordecai. We see the Esther, Esther the king, and Mordecai. Now they, they together enact a new law, and this new law is meant to uh, overtake that old law. There's a day coming in the twelfth month when, when on that day everyone is to destroy, annihilate all the Jews. But they set another law that has to do with the Jewish people being able to gather together and defend themselves and form armies and militias together to defend themselves. So they set, they set up this new law between themselves. And when the day comes on the twelfth month, the Jews are victorious. They're victorious. The very thing that was meant to destroy the Jews is actually the thing that advanced them even further and established them even deeper as a people and as the people of God. You get to the very end of the book and it speaks about the days of Purim. That these are, the days of Purim were, was a feast that the Israelite people celebrated over and over and over again. And, and, and this, it tells us that these events mark the reason for the days of Purim. Now, I hope you understand the story. I hope you got a good reminder, a good grasp on just the flow of this story. So here's what I, what I want to do now. The hero of this book is the unnamed one. Do you understand that? It's not Mordecai. It's not Esther. We see their weaknesses weed into the book. The hero of the book is the God of providence, the sovereign one, the one who is in control of all things and all events. And I want us to see that. 
I want us to see it clearly. Now, you don't see any miracles in this book, except, again, those naturally supernatural type miracles. You know, if you think about it, if you, if, if, uh, to part the Red Sea, for example, to, I want you to see how glorious this is. To part the Red Sea, you need a God that has control over the elements, that can actually control the natural flow of water and do something supernatural. To, for the Red Sea event to happen, you need a God that can do that. And that's glorious. And we have such a God. <laughs> but to do what's done in Esther, you need a God who is in control of every single thought of every single person and every single event and even all sin and evil men bow down ultimately to God's ultimate will. You need a God that can do all of that. So no parting of the Red Sea in the book of Esther, but this is glorious and beautiful events. So I want us to see the glory of the providence of God in this book. Now, the way I want to do it is I want to show it to you in three layers. From narrow... And then we're going to broaden out to the bigger picture, okay? So, so three layers of God's providence. Now, the first, first thing I want to see is just the providence of God, number one, in Mordecai's life. This is almost funny, the providence of God in, in, in Mordecai's life. You know, you can... Uh, sometimes God's providences are so uh, beautiful and obvious and amazing that they literally will make you laugh. And I was, I've, I've been reading a lot of stories as I've studied this about the providence of God. And there's one I'll tell you real quick, just this, in, in my mind, it's humorous in the way that, that uh, Mordecai's is humorous. Have you ever heard of a guy named Andrew Bonner? Andrew Bonner. This guy is kind of like, I believe he's in the 1800s, he's kind of like the uh, John Piper of his day. Very well-known pastor, very well-known preacher named Andrew Bonner. Now hear me out. He tells this story that there was a guy in his church that really, I, he idolized uh, Andrew Bonner in a very, very unhealthy way. He, he, he loved this man, but he idolized him. He saw him at a certain place, a pedestal, that he should not have put a man. Now, eventually, Andrew Bonner has to leave. He has to leave this church. God calls him to another place. So here's this man in this church that idolizes Andrew Bonner. And in, and in this time, they bring another pastor in, and this guy's just not happy. This, this new pastor, he's not like my pastor. He's not as good as Andrew Bonner, so he sinfully leaves his church. He goes to another church. That pastor's not like my pastor. He goes to another church. That, that pastor's not like my pastor, Andrew Bonner. He goes to another church. That pastor's not like my pastor. He eventually scraps it all, and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to a park every Sunday, and he just goes to a park, and he opens his Bible, and he just sits on a park bench, and that's his, that's his church. He just sits there. And one day, a lady comes by, and she's pushing a stroller. And she's got a little two-year-old here, and she's got a baby in the stroller, and she's pushing her stroller. She, has no, she doesn't even acknowledge that, that this man is sitting there with his open Bible. She didn't even notice him. And she pulls up right beside him, and she says these words. She says, she says don't lean on Andrew, Bonner. The two-year-old's name was Bonner, and the baby's name was Andrew. And she says, don't lean on Andrew Bonner. And all the man hears is, don't lean on Andrew Bonner. And it wigs him out and he repents of his sin and goes back to his old church. So, they're almost humorous sometimes, these providences. And I think Mordecai's life 
is sort of like that. So I want you to think about Mordecai's life for just a minute. We'll try to talk through this pretty fast. Mordecai is not much in the kingdom. He's a nobody in the kingdom. It's Mordecai starting off. And then, just before, before we hear anything about Haman, before we hear anything about this plot to kill all the Jews, this thing um, just so happened. That's the phrase I'll use to, to, to get your mind to think about the prophets of God. Just so happened, Mordecai's sitting around, and he hears these two guys, these two eunuchs, that work for the king, and they're plotting to kill the king. Just so happens, Mordecai hears it. He overhears it. He runs to Esther. He tells Queen Esther. Queen Esther tells the king. The king examines it, finds out it's true. And they get rid of those two guys. And then they go to this thing called the Book of the Chronicles. And they write down in the Book of the Chronicles everything that happened. Mordecai found out this plot and saved the king's life. So there it is. Just so happened. All that stuff happened. And then after that, we're introduced to Haman and this plot to kill all the Jews. We're introduced to that plot after that happens. Now, Mordecai is literally the face of Haman's hatred for the Jewish people. He cannot stand Mordecai. Now, fast forward. The night before the banquet, where the king is there, and Esther is there, and Haman is there, and and Esther's going to make known her request to the king the night before, Man, Haman goes home, it's at the end of Esther chapter 5. Haman goes home and he's happy, he's filled with joy that he's gotten invited to that banquet, remember that? And then as he goes out of the doors of the castle, he starts heading back home to his wife and his friends, he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't care, he's not trembling, he's not bowing down to Haman, and he's filled with rage, he's filled with anger, and he goes back to his family, and he expresses to them, all these things that I have, all these things that I am, yet I cannot be at peace until that man is dead. So they say, you know what you ought to do? You ought to build a gallows. And tomorrow morning, you know, before you go to that banquet, tomorrow morning, you go to the king, and you, re- you request to the king, let's kill Mor- Mordecai on the gallows that you made. So they make the, ga- the gallows, you know, 50 cubits high. And the next morning, Haman heads to the king to say, let's, let's kill Mordecai. Just so happens. Chapter 6, verse 1, listen, just so happens. On that night, the night before he would come, hear the providence of God. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Just so happened. Which, which book of the chronicles will they grab? I think I'll grab this one. I'll read this one to the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bithana and Teresh, had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's units, eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Just so happened to read that story. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? What honor was given to this man? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. Nothing's been done for Mordecai. And the king said, Who is in the court? Who's in the court right now? Guess who just so happened to be there? Now Haman had just 
entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young man told him this. Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. So Haman came in, and before Haman has a chance to say, let's kill Mordecai, the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, so he's you know, speaking with himself right now, he's thinking, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Oh, surely he wants to honor me, right? He, he's talking about me, so I'll give him an answer thinking he wants to honor me. And so Haman said to the king, here's what you do. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over, listen, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman says, oh, you want to, he's thinking, you want to honor me? Oh, you want to honor somebody? Here's what you do. Get one of your robes, one of your horses, get one of your most noble officials, and put your robe on this man, put him on your horse, and, and parade him around the city with your most noble official saying, this is the man whom the king delights to honor. And uh, Haman, and the king, Ahasuerus, says, all right, Haman, go do that for Mordecai. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes, imagine it, and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, can you see him doing it? Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. You see the providence of God here? So Haman returns home. He's embarrassed. He's weeping. He's broken. Something's not right here. And as you keep reading, you realize that it's almost as if his wife and his friends, they begin to sniff out the providence of God in this situation. Look at verse, look at, keep going to verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before you begun to fall is of, of the Jewish people, do you hear that? She says, if Mordecai's of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. She has sniffed out the providence of God in this situation. God is moving all things to protect His people and to come against you, their enemy. And while they were yet talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived. So they're in the middle of having that conversation, and the eunuchs show up, and they, hur and they and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So they take him to that feast, and that's the very feast where Haman will be executed. And as you keep reading through the story, you realize that this lowly Mordecai 
through the providence of God in his life, just so happened to see, uh, to overhear that plot to kill the king, just so happened the king can't sleep, just so happened he pulls out this book of the Chronicle and has this story read to him, just so happened Haman is planning to kill him on gallows that he built, and just so happened Haman is hanged on those very same gallows. And you read the very last verse in Esther chapter 10, verse 3, and we see Mordecai exalted. For Mordecai, the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So that's the providence of God in Mordecai's life. Now, if you zoom out a little bit, I want you to see the providence of God with the people of Israel. The providence of God with the Jewish people. What's the problem presented in the book of Esther? What's the problem? Complete Jewish annihilation. That's the problem. They want to kill them all. And so that's the problem presented here. But think about God's providence. Just so happened uh, the king divorces Vashti. God's even using sin that he did not originate, but using sin and bending it for his own purposes. And just so happened a Jewish orphan girl becomes queen. Just so happens, nobody knows her ethnicity. And through this, God delivers His people. I love those words of Mordecai when he says that. Think, about, think again about what he says. And hear the providence of God. Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jew, for the Jews from another place. But who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? One more layer, I want you to zoom out again. I want you to think about the, the divine providence on all of God's people in the book of Esther. Divine providence on all of the church of Jesus Christ that's found, and we, we see God's divine providence that affects all of God's people in the book of Esther. Let me explain to you what I mean. What we see is a plot to kill Mordecai. What we see is a plot to kill all the Jews. But do you understand the satanic scheme that's underneath it all? Do you get it? There's a satanic scheme here. What is it? Well, listen, way back in Genesis chapter 3, a war was waged. That there would be a war, God said it, between the seed of the serpent, that is Satan, and the seed of the woman, that is the Christ who is to come. And ever since then, throughout the whole Old Testament, there is a war being waged, that Satan is trying to put out the seed of the woman who is Christ to come. Well, what's one way he can do that? One of his last-ditch efforts in Old Testament history is, I will try to annihilate all the Jews, and the Christ will not come. If I can annihilate all the Jews, then the Christ won't come to save us. Jesus won't come to lay down His life for us. It will never happen. If Satan can annihilate all the Jews. But just so happened, just so happened, divine providence in the book of Esther that affects us all, just so happened, God ordered all things, all people, all circumstances, not only to protect His people, but even to establish them in deeper ways for the next 400 years until the Messiah comes. You say, what do you mean establish them more deeply? I love this verse. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. This is after verse 17, excuse me, 8.17. This is after that second law went out that would protect the Jews. 
Listen to what happened in 817. And in every province, and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Okay, that makes sense, right? God has protected His people and they're filled with joy. Keep, keep going. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews who had fallen on them. So not only does He protect His people, but He establishes them for the next 400 years until Christ comes. you got even people from the nations, they see what happens and they go, I'm Jewish. I'll be Jewish. I'll be one that waits on that coming King, that coming Messiah. The very event that is meant to destroy all Jews, God uses it in His providence to actually increase the people of God and establish them as the ones through whom the Messiah comes. The book of Esther is God's divine providence to protect and establish the Jews so that the Christ would come and the church could be saved. I want to mention, just in closing here, a few, <clears throat> a few application points for us as we think about the providence of God. <clears throat> I want to mention three things to you, three application points here. Okay? Number one, I want to encourage you to know yourself, to really, really know yourself. We all have a sinful tendency to miss the hand of God. We all have a sin, sinful tendency to just be unaware that God is literally ordering all things. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Not one raindrop hits the wrong spot on the ground, ever. God is in perfect, sovereign, providential control of all things, all events, all people, all animals, the thoughts of men, the actions of men. He is in control, and we have such a tendency to miss His hand. You need to know that about yourself because if we're unaware of Him, if we're unaware of His providence, then we won't thank Him for it. We won't worship our God and give Him thanksgiving and praise and honor because God, look what you have done if we're unaware of it. So know that about yourself. Too. So often we're like Job. Listen to Job 23, verse 8. Behold, I go forward, but He is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive Him. On the left, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. And so often, God is at work in front of us, behind us, to the left of us, and to the right of us, and we can't see it. So we need to know that about ourselves, that that's our tendency, and hopefully we'll, we'll begin to respond accordingly. We'll actually look for the, prom- the, the providences of God in our lives. Now, let me give a quick warning here. Here's what I don't mean. I do not mean that you should be always led by uh, providences and circumstances and, and situations. I'm not saying you should be led in that sort of way. Listen, here, here's the reason. Here's the reason. You are not smart enough to look at all the individual pieces of the puzzle and know where God's going. And neither am I. None of us are smart enough to do it. So we're not to be led by these things necessarily. We're to be led by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Listen to this warning from Thomas Watson. He says, It is good to observe providence, but we must not make it our rule to walk by. Providence is a Christian's diary, but not his Bible. Providence is a Christian's diary, but not 
His Bible. But at the same time, do you see it? Or do you miss the providences of God? I hope this even changes our vocabulary. This, you know, we say luck and good fortune and, and you know, all these things that we say. I hope even our vo- vocabulary is disrupted and we say that is the sovereign hand of God. That's the providence of God in our lives. So know yourself. That's point one, know yourself. And respond accordingly. Number two, love divine providence. And I, I want to highlight the word love. I want to encourage you to love this aspect of God. That He's a God that has decided that He would work the way He just worked in the book of Esther. He doesn't have to do it this way. He can do any miraculous thing He wants to do, and yet God works in His promise. I want to encourage you to love, love, love that about God. It's not a small thing. Go reread your Bible again with an eye to see it and you will see God fulfilling His prophecies, fulfilling His promises and over and over again He's doing it through naturally supernatural means. Now, I think it can be argued, I don't have to argue this much, but I think it can be argued that God's divine providence as we see in Esther is actually more glorious than even a, a supernatural intervention from God. I think that can be argued. Let me give you an example. There's a lady named Helen Rosevere, missionary to the Congo. Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere is a missionary there uh, several decades ago. And as a missionary, uh, she's begun to, to work with a, a leper colony. So she's trying to help with leprosy in the Congo. And there she is doing her work. And she has a need. And if I remember right, the need was exactly, for this certain medicine, for, for leprosy, the need was 4,320 francs. 4,320 francs, exactly what she needed. And so how would God give this? Now here's what God could do. God could have made money all of a sudden. As she prayed, money could just start floating from heaven. And just she stick her hands out like this, and God could just make money float right into her arms. He could do that, amen? Agree with that? So this is a way that he could have responded. But here's what, and that would have been glorious, but, but listen, here's what God does. Instead of that, at the very last moment, the very last day, she can't go one more day without this money. She's got to have it at this particular moment. God provides for her. You know how he does it? It's through three different gifts that arrived at the same time from three different continents. The money is sent And at every checkpoint, money has to be taken off for going through that checkpoint. And when it arrives, it arrives at the exact amount so that when she takes off her tithe and gives her tithe, it's exactly 4,320 francs. And get this, they all sent the money, all three of them sent the money four months before she ever prayed the prayer. And I'm going, I'd rather see that than money falling from heaven. That's a glorious thing that God... So it can be argued. You don't have to go that far with it. It can be argued that it is more glorious what God does in His providential acts. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, love it. Have you ever loved this about God? This is who He is. This is what He's like in your life. Do you love it? And do you see it? John Flavel said this. uh, Puritan said, He who loves providence will never be long without a providence to observe. He who loves providence will never be long without a providence to observe. Let me mention one more takeaway here quickly. I want to encourage all of us to prepare ourselves 
to trust God when providence stings. Sometimes providence can sting. Um, the writer of the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, he called it frowning providence. He said, behind every frowning providence is a smiling face. So frowning providences are providences that sting. Here's a, uh, you know, I told you I'm reading all these stories. Man, I'm full of them. I hope I can keep reading these after I'm done teaching this. But I'm just reading all these stories about God at work, and it's usually with missionaries and stuff. But this story is a little different. This lady, she takes care of a farm. I'm reading this story. She takes care of a farm. She's all by herself, except her sister. And her sister is sick and handicapped, and she can't, she can't do anything on her own. So here's this lady having to take care of the farm and having to take care of her sister all by herself. And all of a sudden, she starts getting ridiculous pain in her wrist and her hands and her fingers. And her hands start stiffening up, and she can't do the work anymore. And therefore, she can't help and provide for her sister anymore. So she goes to the doctor. The doctor looks at her hands and her wrist and the pain in her fingers, all this stuff, and there's nothing they can do for her. In fact, they try something that doesn't work, some sort of form of arthritis at this time, and, and they didn't know what to do. They tried something that didn't work. They tried something, it didn't work. They tried something else, it didn't work. She, what's she going to do? And so in a moment of desperation, she's a Christian, she hits her face and she cries out, Oh God, would you please help me? Would you please help me with this pain in my wrist, in my hands, and in my fingers? Would you help me, God? I can't take care of this farm. I can't take care of my sister. Would you help me, Lord? And she gets up from her knees and she goes on about her life. And for the next two weeks, as she goes out and she, she hangs up her, her uh, clothes and, and bed sheets and things like that, and she hangs them up out to dry outside. Every time she goes out there, she gets stung by these stinking bees. Every time she, and they only sting her in the hands and in her fingers and her wrists, and they just keep stinging her. And she's getting frustrated. Every time she goes out there, it's like these bees begin to attack her hands. A little bit later, she starts noticing she has more mobility. Her hands are loosening up. And then, she, and then she goes back to the doctor, and the doctor's amazed at the mobility that she has. She say, he says, did you take some kind of medicine? What's going on here? Why are your hands freed up like they are? And she says, no, I'm a Christian, and I cried out to my God, and I asked God to help, and my God helped me. Oh, and by the way, there's these doggone bees that keep stinging my hands all the time. And the doctor said, You'll never believe this, but I just received word and research from another place in the country that said that certain kind of bee venom is actually what's needed to help with this arthritis. And, uh, and, and of course, you can look that up now, and there's a certain kind of uh, arthritis is treated with a certain kind of bee venom. And so, God, think about the providence that stings. She doesn't like it that she's being stung in her hands by these bees. And yet, God sends the bee. God sent it to sting her hands. God sent it to help her and answer to her prayers. The providence of God. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Trust God when providence stings. Sometimes it gets hard. Sometimes God's work of providence is suffering and hardship, and it really does get hard. And you have to ask yourself, do you really, in those moments of hardship, do you believe Romans 8, 28? Here's the providence of God, that God works together all things for good. To you that love God and that are the called according to His purpose, are you those called by God that love Him? Is that you? Then listen, God works together all things. Even the things that sting, even the things that are hard, He's orchestrating all of it for your ultimate good and His glory. Are you going to believe that? So Grace Community Church, as I close this out, I want you to listen to me. 
I, I have, as I've been overwhelmed with these things in the book of Esther and the providence of God, one thought has come to my mind that I feel like I just, I, I want to I put it in front of you. I think God will test us in this. If you take up this charge and your heart's stirred, then my God is a God of sovereign providence. Then listen to me. As you move out from here and you begin to think about that and you remember providences in your life and, and, and you're beginning to try to see that in the future and, 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 and worship God for this and trust in the Lord and providence is thing. As you do that, I, I feel like I need to tell you this. You will be tested in that. And so will I. And one thing that made me think about that is as I'm studying through all these things about the providence of God during these last couple weeks, uh, many of you know about this, but, but my youngest little boy, so i got four kids, and my youngest little boy is three years old. Thousands of people on the coast at this air show, thousands of people, and all of a sudden, my little boy, my little three-year-old boy comes up missing. Nobody knows where he's at. Can't, can't find him. And, and you just imagine that. Now, about 10, 12 minutes later or so, he's found with the police officer. But you just imagine that. None of the people that love him the most in this world were able to have their eyes on him in that moment. But God never took his eyes off of that boy. And he watched him all the way through and he guided him into the arms of here, into the arms of the police and back to us. God is a God of providence. And what I thought about in that moment is, and, and, and again, I... And I didn't even find out about this till after the fact, but still, I thought in that moment, God will test us in this. A couple days later, I see my dad, who, you know, my, uh, my kids, especially my older kids, and my dad and, and my wife, they're broken up over this situation, as you can imagine. That's a, probably the hardest 10, 12 minutes of, of their lives in some ways. And, you, you, and a couple days later, my dad shows up at my house, and he's got tears rolling down his cheeks, and he's got my kids sitting in front of him, and he's teaching them about that one sheep that got away and leaving the 99 to go after the one. And I'm going, God, thank you for your providence. Look at what you're doing, Lord, even through a situation like that. And so I want to encourage you that I think God will test us over these things. Get your heart prepared to see the providence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are sovereign and in control of all things. God, I pray that you would draw out our hearts to worship you over that fact. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth and Esther. Thank you for your love for us, God. Thank you that you take those whom you know, who love you, who are the called according to your purpose, and you say that you work all things for their good. And God, I think especially how you did that at the cross. The worst sin, the worst sin, God, that has ever been committed that the Son of God would be spit upon, that the Son of God would be crucified and humiliated. And Lord, you used those acts of providence, God, to bring about salvation for our souls. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.